Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Alice Gully, co-owner and managing director of Aardvark Safaris, who offer tailored safaris to Eastern and Southern Africa. Alice, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. Now, normally we get directly into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, we must start there. Uh, Of course, this has decimated many different industries, none more so than travel. Uh, What sort of effect has this had on your business? I think you could draw um, positives and negatives from it. Obviously, uh, international travel to Africa has come to a grinding halt, partly um, due to the lockdown in this country and then partly due to increasing numbers in their countries, in Africa, and then obviously the quarantine implications on travel. Um, but yeah, it's been a very different um, setup of, of postponing people's holidays. We've had, uh, at the beginning, we were repatriating people, looking after people, make sure they got home safely. Then we were moving holidays on that were due to happen in the short term. To most of them have postponed to next year. And then in the last maybe eight weeks or so, we have had um, a real turnaround in positivity from people wanting something to look forward to. We've adjusted the way we work. We do a lot of calls on Zoom when it comes to planning these trips. They can take up to a month or so to get organized. And we've been really encouraged by uh, the need to travel, the need to have something to look forward to. Um, the people are really enthusiastic about supporting Africa's conservation efforts. And I would say we've seen some of human sort of kindness at its very best in the last few months. It has been, uh, we, we are very lucky. We have the most incredible clients. So they've made our job a lot easier. Now, of course, uh, there have been many changes within industry for this period of time. Do you feel that your industry will change in the long term due to the results of the pandemic? Yeah, we're already seeing. So I think we've got three uh, types of work on at the moment. One is um, moving bookings to next year, which are the same bookings as this year. So they've paid there for their trip or they've paid a deposit to commit to their trip and those trips have been moved on. So not much has changed with those, obviously. And then we've got people who are going last minute. So they're going, they, they phone us up today and they want to go on a plane tomorrow. And those are the guys who are just keen to get away, have a trip, get us on safari or go and support a project. And then we've got other people, the people who are planning their trips now, those are the ones where we're seeing the most change. They are looking for long-term, sustainable, uh, no less moving around, less time in the air, less burning fuel, more supportive of camps and lodges which employ locals in the community, support schools, support football clubs, this kind of idea. Um, and that has been a shift. In the past, we've had people maybe rushing too much to try and incorporate two or maybe three countries in southern or eastern Africa in one trip and I mean today I've had people wanting to go to um, just two places in Kenya in a fortnight and another family wanting to go just to the Masai Mara staying in a private house not moving anywhere and just really getting stuck into the local area so we have seen that shift and, and I hope that will change for the future people will be in a, an area for longer enjoying 
the local area and really understanding how these cases tick rather than visiting for two or three days when you can't really get beneath the skin and um, all that all that they offer. Mm. So yes, I would say it's changing. Well, we should move on to the subject of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? I think um, leading by example, probably. I don't know if that's the right answer or not. Um, but we are quite a small team. Uh, 19 of us uh, will actually slightly fewer after this um, pandemic. But we are a core team of people and uh, there are two owners, me and Richard Smith. We work the same hours as everybody else. We have the same sales targets as everybody else. We um, are expected to do the same amount of travel um, to Africa. Um, So I think, yeah, working with everyone together and not having an owner of a company who's removed from the actual job itself, I would say. And how would you describe your day-to-day leadership style? We're very involved, very hands-on, very involved. I probably do um, an element of work for myself or own projects in terms of marketing or moving the company into into different areas away from the office. But when I'm in the office, it's very much sitting with the sales team and just having a keeping an eye on, or not on the eye, because we're quite often learning from each other if somebody's been to a country more recently than you have, but you're going through the itineraries that are being put together, making sure we're not missing any obvious um, improvements that can be made for people, the learning from each other. We have a couple of meetings a day. And then we also have a very strong uh, backup team who do all our ticketing and um, help us with the arrangements on the ground in terms of the actual logistics. And those guys are have got their eyes and ears on the ground, uh, much more so than some of the salespeople. So just making sure that the two lots are talking to each other and we're producing the best possible trip we can. How would you just say that you came to your leadership style? Did you have a particular role model or have you been shaped more by circumstances? I definitely say by circumstances. So I was, um, I'm very dyslexic. So I'm a very visual person, if you like, and definitely like meeting people. I, I like people full stop. So being in front of people all the time, um, there aren't wordy emails from me or anything like that. It's very much a matter of um, getting together and this is how we're going to do it. Um, I was training to be a vet before I went to Africa and then I stopped training to be a vet and got involved in um, conservation and then came back to the UK about 20 years ago and started um, with Richard Smith, my business partner, then. And so I haven't had any official training I haven't I've worked for a couple of other people before I started here um but yeah learning on the job I guess and as we've grown you've had to pass on certain roles and responsibilities to other people but we've all done those roles before somebody else joined us so it's not as if we um created new roles for people one of the most difficult aspects of leadership can be dealing with conflict do you have a particular method of how you resolve conflict Yes, uh, very much. If it's starting to bother you, I'd say to everybody, you must raise it at the early stages. I don't want to know about it when it's the sort of straw that breaks the camel's back. You quite often can have a a very open chat with everybody involved at the early stages, and that normally sorts everything out. So when you start looking at somebody else's perspective or somebody in the office starts seeing somebody else's perspective, they calm down. But it's yeah, it's dealt with quickly in a conversation. A face-to-face conversation is always easier and kinder than anything else. And um, it normally isn't such a big deal as you think it might be. 
Now, unfortunately, we don't have unlimited time, so I'd like to run through a couple of quick-fire questions with you. If you were to advise a young person on a singular role model in business that they should follow, who would that be? Gosh, I don't know. I would... um, I'm thinking about a couple of guys in Africa, but um, somebody with straight moral, straight talking... Um, I mean, Obama (laughs) in my mind, Um, but there are plenty of guys and leaders in Africa who do a good job for conservation, who just get their head down and get on with the job and don't expect too much glory in return. Um, Somebody like that. What do you look for in a new recruit to your business? Um, I look for um, anyone with a get up and go. Um, I don't mind how inexpensive experience they are but they must be willing to learn and um, put in as much graft as the rest of us um, keen to travel obviously and have a good eye for detail in terms of the the biggest thing for us is, is attention to detail and looking after our clients so really thinking as if you're a client what would you expect what would you want punctuality getting back to people that the customer service I guess is, a, is very important and if you could speak to yourself 30 years ago, what would the advice be that you'd give your younger self? I would. I, I don't regret anything. I'm glad I'm not a vet now. I did wish I had been for a while, but I'm, no, I, I have been incredibly fortunate. I had a great couple of years in Africa learning from the African side, and I a lot of conservation work. We raise a lot of money on the side of the company for rhinos and elephants and various other programs. And I, yeah, I mean, work as hard as you can to get where you want to be, probably. And maybe I would have done some things earlier rather than later, but there was experience gained between now and then. Of course. Now, of course, we are about to be out of time, but just tell me in in a few uh, short sentences, what does the next 12 months have in store for Aardvark Safaris? Uh, well, we, we are seeing some recovery. So I'm hoping we're going to um, support the slightly different shift in travel. I hope the UK government will open up uh, some of these travel corridors in the right way to some African countries that haven't been given any consideration yet. And I'm hoping that we'll have a, a better quarantine period for those other countries that don't get onto that list, that we can open travel up. And Africa, we get supported again by UK tourists and, and boost their economy. We've, we're seeing a lot of unemployment at the moment in Africa because of the travel ban. So I'm hoping that we keep recovering and things start to open up a little bit more. Well, Alice, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on the program. It's been a pleasure to have you here. And of course, we'll have to have you at some point in the future. But for now, we must say goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. That was Alice Gully, co-owner and managing director of Aardvark Safaris. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public 
and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... Uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. This can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. um, To have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, Mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because 
that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after. Because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you Quite. know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it's just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as done. a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually 
the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those uh, situations. Um, And when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. (laughs) How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in the completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because they they'll know your heart's in the right place, and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... 
were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move at the times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what had the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I. Actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands: husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, 
um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. And so after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two f- focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us yeah. last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in 
in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I'm not sure we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.